I'm really happy to be introducing a Mr. Alain de Botton. Alain de Botton is a writer of essayistic books that have been described as capturing a philosophy of everyday life. He's written on love, travel, architecture, and literature in books like The Art of Travel, The Architecture of Happiness, How Proust Can Change Your Life, and The Consolations of Philosophy. His books have been bestsellers in 30 countries. Mr. de Botton also started and helps to run a school in London called The School of Life, dedicated to a new vision of education. His newest book is The Pleasures and Sorrows of Work. Please welcome Mr. Alain de Botton. Thank you all very much. Thank you to Zocalo. Thank you to the Getty. Um, it's a huge privilege for me, finally, to, to be here. There weren't that many invitations. I do generally quite like any excuse to stop working and uh, hop on a plane. But thank you so much for, for inviting me. Um, well, I want to talk today uh, about work. And I think that um, to be a modern human being, to be alive in the modern age, means never being far, I think, from having a career crisis. Uh, having uh, anxieties, doubts about one's career, one's direction, uh, what it all means. For me, Sunday evening is the favoured time for this uh, privileged uh, uh, state, just as the sun is going down and the gap between uh, uh, what is and what might have been grows uh, gnawingly large. Um, that's the time really to, to, to reflect on all of this. So, um, as I say, to, to be modern is to, is to be very invested in one's career. Uh, one of the first things that people tend to ask each other when they meet is, what do you do? Uh, and they're not simply asking for an update on status or salary. Really, what they're looking for is, who are you? They're looking for an answer to the, a deeper question. You know, what is your identity? Um, and this is a very uh, a modern sort of situation. Um, one of the things that struck me writing my book, uh, was the discovery of just how varied the history of work is and how unusual our attitudes towards work are looked at from a historical point of view. Um, to summarize very crudely, for most of human history, there's been absolutely no expectation that work uh, could be anything other than miserable. Um, the point of work was suffering. Uh, you, you worked for money, for survival, uh, and um, if you listen to someone like Aristotle, um, everybody is a, is a slave, and it's his word, a slave, a strong word, um, if you are in any way dependent on somebody else for your living wage. So that would place most of us in the, in the slave uh, category. So, um, and Christianity adds to this very dark uh, idea, the further thought that any unpleasantness in work is really a, a way of atoning for the sins of Adam. So a very, very dark view of work for most of, of, of human history. Now, the, the, the great thing about talking uh, at the Getty as opposed to uh, uh, in, a, in a university that you can come out with sentences like, in about 1750, uh, things started to change. Uh, but they, they really did, in, in about 1750. Um, that was the date of the publication of uh, Diderot and d'Alembert's famous uh, encyclopedia, the world's most famous encyclopedia, which uh, was distinctive in one key area because it featured very heavily ordinary jobs. Uh, one uh, 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 entry after another featured things like bread making, uh, uh, forging of anchors, uh, um, uh, how a silver mine is run, all these sort of things which, of course, people had known uh, went on, but they'd never stopped to, to consider these 
crafts, these jobs, as something that was worthy of, of reflection and analysis and indeed celebration. So you, you, you get in, the, uh, uh, in these philosophers and thinkers of the mid-18th century the first arguments, which are now very familiar to us, that work is really a way of liberating yourself, it's a way of asserting your identity, it's a way of becoming uh, truly human. And these are voices that we pick up in uh, people like uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Benjamin Franklin, um, fascinating new uh, idea of what work uh, uh, could be. And it's also interesting that at this very time, let's say around 1750, um, there are new attitudes to love and, and fascinating parallels. Freud uh, famously declared uh, that the two key ingredients of happiness are love and work. Um, and it, it's fascinating in this context that in the middle of the 18th century, there are new attitudes to love, specifically towards marriage. Um, suddenly, it becomes a, 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 wide, a widespread belief uh, that you should marry, uh, not merely to pass on the family silver pot or title, but you could actually have a chance of being happy uh, with uh, the person that you marry, and you might even be in love with them for quite a lo long period of time. Extraordinary idea uh, that um, uh, uh, was never tried before in, uh, in human history. Um, and uh, uh, so, so this fascinating uh, conjunction, as it were, um, between necessity, the necessity of the practical necessities of family life, say, and the pleasures of the romantic life, and these have a parallel in our attitudes to work, where, again, the necessities of earning money are joined up with the pleasures of, uh, um, uh, of fulfilling yourself and being creative and authentic uh, in, in the workplace. Now, with these changes uh, come new kinds of taboos. Um, suddenly, two things that had been a mainstay of aristocratic culture, in a way, if you like, a safety valve of aristocratic culture, suddenly start to uh, um, acquire pejorative uh, meanings. I'm thinking, on the one hand, of the hobby, and on the other hand, of the mistress. Uh, so suddenly, the hobby and the mistress go out of favor. The hobby, you're not supposed to have a hobby anymore because your job is supposed to be everything. And you're not supposed to have a mistress, again, because, you know, your marriage, it's everything, all, everything's supposed to be there. Now, we are the heirs of these two great 18th century ideas, work and love. Um, and there are beautiful, these are beautiful ideals. They're very democratic ideals. Um, and uh, they're very hopeful ideals. Uh, I, I don't think I'm being too autobiographical to say that probably... I don't know, 60 to 80% of us are probably going to have a problem in one or either of these areas on a fairly regular basis. Um, nevertheless, we, we cling to these, uh, uh, to, to these ideas. And um, in a way, that's the background uh, to my thinking and, and, and my, my book on, uh, on, on work. Um, interesting to, to pause here. When, um, when the Getty invited me here, they said, um, do you know that we've got a, a, an awful lot of art uh, and photography uh, connected to, uh, to work, and would you like to pick a few images that reflect um, some of the attitudes to work uh, that are out there? Now, given what I've just said, um, looking through the collection, and there are some wonderful things, I've really only picked a, a, a mere handful, um, but if we were to pick up on the story that I've just been uh, telling you, uh, this, is, this is what work has been for most of human history. Uh, man with a hoe, uh, Jean-François Millet, uh, 1860 to 1862. Um, workers suffering, workers a penance, um, and uh, there are days when probably all of us feel a little bit like uh, this unfortunate man with a hoe. But it, it almost makes us laugh because it, it seems antiquated. Uh, it seems like an image of work that uh, we would like to feel that we are, are, are far from. Perhaps we're nearer this image of work, uh, Lewis Hine, mechanic and steam pump, 1921, a heroic vision. Um, the idea of a man and machine uh, collaborating, each one bringing out the virtues of the other. Um, and uh, yes, it doesn't get more heroic than this. But of course, this, and this is the last slide, um, 
And this has only been uh, 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 one image of what work is. And there's always been, at the back of our imagination, something more like this. Um, again, Lewis Hine, cotton mill worker, North, North Carolina, 1908. Um, the, the, the reason why this image is so poignant is that we can't help but feel that the identity of uh, uh, this girl as identified as a cotton mill worker is such an abbreviation of what is clearly a kind of intelligence and sensitivity and a full humanity which one reads in, in, in this girl's amazing eyes um, and which makes us feel that there is something deadening, killing almost in uh, the, the work of, uh, uh, of the cotton mill and perhaps in work more generally. So uh, these are just uh, uh, three images um, uh, picked from a wonderful collection um, and, uh, and to help us to reflect on uh, these momentous changes that have occurred uh, in, in, in the world of work. Um, the, uh, to come back to, to in a way, uh, some of the more immediate reasons why I wrote the book uh, that I did and why my attention was, was, was focused on this, is, uh, on this topic, is that very strangely, um, work is not very well represented in books, in literature, if you like. Um, you know, if you, were to, if you were a Martian and you went to uh, any large bookstore, as Martians will, and you, look at the, you looked at the table uh, of uh, uh, fiction and new fiction and non-fiction, and you tried, particularly fiction, uh, and you tried to imagine what human beings were like simply on the evidence of what's on the table, you'd basically come away with the idea that human beings spend all their time falling in love uh, squabbling with their families and occasionally murdering one another. But what they don't seem to ever do is go to the office uh, or go to the business park. This is, there is a strange and curious silence in uh, artistic, particularly literary culture, about what we do. And this felt wrong, and I wanted to write a book that would hold a mirror up to uh, uh, our working selves. Of course, the working world gets represented uh, in uh, uh, financial reporting, uh, in newspapers, on, on television, as a set of data, as a set of figures. But what I was keen to bring out was also the, the more human side, as it were, the, the eyes of that uh, uh, mill worker, the, the full humanity um, uh, that goes on in, in the world of work. We have an odd attitude towards culture um, and towards what we might do with our leisure time. You know, in, 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 the, uh, uh, in the modern world, um, when we think of spending our leisure hours, we almost always think of, do, uh, of doing things that take us away from the world of work and that don't have particular reference to the world of work. Uh, if you look at an average guidebook to a new location, let's say you're touring Italy and you've got a guidebook in the car, um, it will always tell you where the museums are, where the paintings are. It will almost never tell you what is going on in that factory, uh, what that shed is uh, over in the corner, who is making the money, how the money is circulating uh, around in the economy. There's a silence about all of this. It's it's almost like we can't face up to a major part of who we are. This wasn't always the case. You know, when the uh, uh, tourists of uh, uh, the 18th century, the 18th century aristocratic tourists of the grand, uh, what was known as the Grand Tour, uh, those English aristocrats who travelled through Italy and left so many accounts of what they did, if you read their diaries and their, their travel logs of what they're doing in Italy, um, when they arrive in a new place, somewhere like Naples, say, uh, they don't just go to the museum and, and the churches, etc. What they tend to do is uh, they go and look at the granary. Uh, they they look at the waterworks, uh, they look at um uh, the, the, the arsenal and, uh, and, and the navy, uh, where, where the navy is being uh, uh, fixed and repaired. Uh, very odd thing to do nowadays. I mean, um, you know, someone coming into L.A., um, you, you don't, on the whole, uh, get taken to see the water treatment plants or uh, uh, the docks uh, down in Long Beach or, or whatever. These are not considered to be the things uh, that one does uh, as, as a respectable uh, part of tourism. And, and that 
I, I'm not. I'm simply picking up on tourism because it's a way of capturing um, what we take to be uh, to be interesting. One of my one of the sources of inspiration um, was children, because I think that children are allowed to be curious about the world of work in a way that sometimes adults are not. And there's a, a lovely children's book that really did inspire me um, by uh, uh, the American children's writer Richard Scarry, and it's called What Do People Do All Day? I don't know if any of you know it. It's it's wonderfully uh, done, and it's almost dumbly divided into ten chapters, each of which follows a particular occupation. So you get a chapter on bread making, you get a chapter on bricklaying, uh, etc. And I remember reading this book and thinking, I want to write an adult version of um, uh, uh, Richard Scarry's What Do People Do All Day? Uh, and, and incidentally, my, the working title of, of, of my book was um, uh, What Do People Do All Day? The next title that I gave, uh, it's now called The Pleasures and Sorrows of Work, but the, uh, the, the original title was going to be from Walt Whitman from The Leaves of Grass, one of his subtitles, A Song for Occupations. Uh, it was going to be called that, but then um, my editor called me up one uh, a night from New York and said, um, look, I'm terribly worried that people are going to mistake this for a rather solemn treatise on the Arab-Israeli conflict. So we had to <laughs> change it to uh, The Pleasures and, uh, and, and Sorrows of Work. But, so, but rather like this Richard Scarry book, focusing on a particular set of, uh, of occupations. And I deliberately chose occupations which seemed right at the centre of the working world, uh, but perhaps rather unfamiliar to, to many of us. Um, you know, if you watch television, you do sometimes get a look into jobs. But the sort of jobs that are on TV are things, if you're interested in, in being a nurse or a doctor or a criminal, there's a lot of information. Um, <laughs> but if you, you know, I've never seen a TV drama about logistics set in the world of logistics. It just hasn't happened. Um, so that's why there's a chapter in my book on, on, on logistics. Um, and... Uh, also power generation, uh, accountancy, biscuit manufacturer. I'll, I'll go through some of these. Um, the other, another source of inspiration, I remember one day um, I was, uh, went down to the, um, uh, uh, what's called the Port of London, which is basically the main harbour where um, uh, the, 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 a lot of the goods that uh, London needs to function are brought in by, uh, uh, by vast cargo ships. So any, any time of the day or night, um, if you care to go down to the Port of London, you will see these vast uh, tankers, freighters, uh, gas tankers, etc. Uh, coming in. But of course, no one's ever looking. Um, uh, you know, the fashionable question is always what's on at the National Gallery, not what's coming into the Port of London. Um, and yet some fascinating stuff is coming in. And again, it's the side of the working world which we don't look at. And I remember being uh, down there at, at the port, and um, there was one group of people there. There was a little jetty. Uh, most of the place is sort of cordoned off. It's very hard to get into. But there's one little jetty where there's a group of people, and uh, they're all men. Uh, many of them had beards. Uh, they had um, thick rubber-soled shoes and uh, rainproof gear. And um, they were the proverbial ship spotters. Uh, they'd come down to the, uh, the harbour to look at ships. Um, and I remember thinking, I, I really like what they're doing, though I'm not so sure, I, I rather I like what they're interested in, but I'm not so sure that I agree with what they're doing with their interest, because all they really seemed to be interested in was... Um, the length of ships and um, the kind of turbine shafts uh, that the, the ships had. That was really the focus of their, their curiosity. They, they reminded me of somebody who's sort of fallen in love with somebody and all they can think of doing is measuring you know, her shoulder blade or something. So they had a very numerical idea of uh, what was interesting. But I liked, as it were, I liked their, their approach to it. So in, in many ways, this is a, a ship spotter's uh, uh, kind of book uh, in which I do go into the, the, the working world, the technological world, and, um, and, and, and mine it for its interest and its, and its resonance. Um, one of the first areas that I, I went to look at was the world of logistics, as I, as I mentioned. And um, the reason I did this is that 
200 years ago, say, we used to know where stuff came from. It, it's one of the main uh, divisions between our world and the pre-modern world. In the pre-modern world, you would know where stuff came from. Um, you would have probably a personal relationship with people who brought you your food. Uh, you would know who made the furniture. Um, you would, as it, as it were, have a personal connection with um, production. And one of the things about the modern world is that we have no idea. We have absolutely no idea where most of the stuff that we use and we consume uh, comes from. And this leads to a feeling of alienation, a loss of a sense of wonder, a feeling of guilt as we contemplate what might be the exploitation uh, that went on in order to uh, produce something. And um, I wanted to, I think one of the things that art can do in the age of advanced logistics is to reconnect us to production, to remind us of the ways uh, in which we have been separated from the origins of, of things. And I remember one night I was... Um, spending time in a giant uh, food warehouse, which most people have no idea where it is, but it's on the north side of, of London. And it feeds about a third of the capital. And it's owned by a large supermarket chain, Sainsbury's. And it's easily, well, I don't know, it's probably the size of this entire museum complex, absolutely vast. Um, and within this complex, there's a, a, a section that's probably the size of this hall we're in, uh, entirely devoted to what's called exotic fish, which is any fish caught outside of UK territorial waters. And I remember one night, I was with I was shadowing a, um, a, a forklift truck driver and, and uh, I, I was looking at an area and it was covered in tuna fish and uh, I remember asking him where they came from and he said that about 22 hours ago these fish would all have been swimming in the Indian Ocean and uh, in about 18 hours they would all be out of the warehouse uh, and probably consumed most of them having been filtered through the supermarket network across the whole of the UK. So an extraordinary logistical exercise of these fish. And I always think, you know, whenever you see a plane flying in the sky, it's almost certainly got fish in the hold somewhere. And it's always it's a feature of the modern world that we've got these planes with fish in them. Um, so I, I decided to undertake a very uh, uh, unusual project then and there. I decided to try and follow every single person who had been in touch with that fish from the moment it had been pulled from the Indian Ocean to the moment it was consumed on the plate. And this took up the better part of four months. Um, I was working with a photographer who I worked with throughout the project, a wonderful photographer, and we just went around interviewing and photographing. It could, in a sense, have been anything. It could have been, you know, iron ore from the Western Australian desert that I could have followed to, you know, the car factories of Mexico. More important than, um, as it were, what it was, it was more the process and an attempt to rectify that process of dislocation, which seems such a lamentable feature of uh, uh, the modern working world and causes us, I think, um, uh, a kind of subtle deadening uh, uh, emotions. Um, another area that I went to, to look at, another sort of professional area, um, is the world of career counselling. Um, now, in a way, career counselling is the most important job in the world, because it's the job that tells you what job you should do. Uh, and the interesting thing about jobs is that, um, unlike unlike many of our appetites, um, we'll very often end up in a situation with our work where we know we don't like something, but we have absolutely no clue what we do like. Uh, and it's very odd. I mean, you, you don't feel that way about food. You don't go, I, I'm, I, you know, I'm hungry, but I don't know what to eat. You know immediately you are guided uh, intuitively towards uh, 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 what might be a, a good idea to eat. This doesn't happen in work. We are genuinely confused. We come up against roadblocks. And that's the origin, I suppose, of the, of the work of the career counsellor. Now, what, what I, I shadowed this particular counsellor um, for over a period of months, and um, his whole uh, thesis really is that um, if you look at children, children on the whole never ask themselves what it is they want to do next. They know immediately. I mean, you very rarely get a four-year-old child who's sitting in a playroom uh, saying, you know, sh should I play with Lego? What might it be better to draw? They just go for it. They just, they don't have any of these anxieties. Um, if you look at adults, um, we've somehow 
somewhere along the way, lost our, intu our intuitions and our ability to kind of uh, guide ourselves towards what might make us uh, bring us satisfaction. And a lot of um, what happens, of course, is the search for status and the search for financial stability gets in the way of our spontaneous interests. So this career counselor saw it as his task in a way to bring us backwards, uh, back to childhood, back to some of our more spontaneous interests to try and trace back where these interests might have got lost. So when you go and see this career counselor, you get handed a sheet of paper and it's titled Things I Like. Uh, and you get put in a room and you get told just to write whatever comes into your head for 15 minutes. And most people go, what? What am I supposed to write? And the career counselor just tells you Any, anything you like. Just tell me what you like. Sunsets, talking to your grandmother, drinking milk. doesn't matter. Write it down. Don't think about it too much. And this sheet of paper, once it's filled in, becomes the starting point for a, a sincere exploration for some of the kind of little very tentative shoots of interest, of spontaneous native interest upon which a kind of concerted search for a more authentic career uh, is, is then built. And it's very fascinating to, to watch the process. And it's fascinating also to see how people come into career counselling in such anguish, basically feeling that they've been living a lie. Um, a, a lot of the process of uh, uh, career counselling, it, it, it almost reminded me sometimes of, of people who were coming out uh, uh, um, uh, to their families, let's say. You know, you, you gather the family round and uh, you say, you know, I've got something to tell you. It's, you know, I know you'll find this difficult, uh, but I'm not who, you know, uh, you, you, you think I am. Uh, uh, you always thought I was an accountant, and you know your sister starts crying and runs upstairs, and uh, you know and you say I am in fact a landscape gardener. This is what I you know really want to do, and it can cause such tremendous um, uh, distress. And um, just that ability—it's fascinating just to see that ability that that who we are on the business card is such an approximation, such a rough approximation of our true ever-complex, ever-shifting, uh, ever-perverse identities that, that always escape uh, being uh, sort of pinned down uh, in neat uh, uh, categories. Um, a lot of what this career counsellor did was to give people confidence. He saw it as his job to give people confidence. Now, he, he, he runs a lot of um, uh, confidence-raising uh, seminars um, by... by sort of temperament, I'm not so into that idea and I um, tend to be suspicious of the idea of whole idea of sort of motivational uh, seminars. One of the things that companies tend to do when they've sacked you and destroyed your confidence is to send you on a confidence-raising uh, seminar so you can move on. So the whole thing seems a bit perverse. But anyway, I, I, I followed him one day to the north of England where um, he was uh, giving a, 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 a confidence-raising seminar to a group of um, people who'd just been sacked from a, a windshield manufacturer, um, a group of middle management. And um, uh, what he asked them to do, I, I was expecting to be sort of sarcastic about the whole thing but I came away in tears because it was so moving basically he would get people to come up on stage and to say what it was that they were interested in as children and um what happened in their life and why why were they now lost and what might they want to do and etc and what was fascinating is just to see adults um speaking in a way so in such raw ways um and explaining how so many little things might have totally put them off course you know they would say things like you know, when I was five, my father said, you know, you're not good at art, it's your sister who's good at art. Or, um, you know, when I was seven, a teacher said to me, you know, you, you, you're never going to be good at maths or whatever it was. These tiny slights, these tiny um, uh, moments of damage that can throw us off course. And um, I think so many of us, are, I sometimes think as a, as a metaphor, I sometimes think that many of us are like exquisite sort of high-speed aircraft that we're missing some tiny part that if only we had, we'd take soaring to the skies, but, 
you know, because of it's missing, with parked to the side of the runway, unable to, to go anywhere. And this is really the area in which career counselling is, uh, is, is kind of operating. But though I admired some of it, I also had lots of reservations about the whole business of career counselling. Um, it sometimes reminded me at its worst of creative writing teaching, which I've done uh, quite a lot of. And I think um, creative writing teaching, both career counselling and creative writing teaching, they're the product of democratic, very optimistic societies. Um, creative writing teaching goes on under the rubric that really anybody can be a great writer, and, and they can't. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think that you know, creative, um, uh, career counselling also goes on under the idea that everybody can have a great destiny, and again, I wonder how helpful that always is to, to make that the sort of starting point. Um, you know, I think if you listen to our politicians, politicians of all persuasions, they're always saying that you know, all we're lacking is opportunity and that we must create a meritocratic society. You know, if you listen to Obama, if you listen to any, any politician in the, in, in the West, it's always the idea of creating a meritocracy, um, which really means a society where if you've got talent and energy, you'll, you'll get there, you'll, you know, you'll, you'll, get to the, you'll get to the top. But there's a problem with meritocracy because if you really uh, believe in a society where those who get to the top merit to get to the top, then surely those who get to the bottom merit to get to the bottom. So it leads to a tremendous lack of sympathy for what I was saying earlier, which is that maybe it's very hard to pin us down to our jobs. Maybe none of us or very few of us ever end up really in the job that we merit. It's very, very hard. Um, it's, it's an impossible kind of task. And I think the more we believe crudely in the idea of a meritocracy, the more often we're, we're tempted to, to, to caricature people. Um, there's, there's a lovely a bit in um, St. Augustine in the City of God um, where he says, and I'm not a, a Christian, I'm a secular Jew, but he says uh, that it's a sin, very strong word, a sin, to judge anybody by their post, what we would call our job. Um, and, um, and, and the reason is that, uh, uh, well, in St. Augustine's view, the only person who can ever judge the merit of a human being is God, and he's going to do that on the last day of judgment, on the day of judgment with trumpets and angels and thunderclaps, etc. Mad idea, but something beautiful in it, which is the idea that essentially we can't simply tell by looking at somebody's business card or whatever what their merit is. Um, the, the true worth and value of a human being always escapes uh, this kind of definition and it always seems like a lesson we have to keep reminding ourselves in relation to ourselves and constantly in relation to anyone that we come into contact with. Um, Another area that I went to look at is the world of biscuits, um, what you call cookies. Um, and I went to look at United Biscuits, which is the UK's largest biscuit manufacturer. They're the second in the bagged nut market. Uh, and um, they're, they're owned by a, an American private equity firm. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, a, like, a bit like fish, the names of biscuits and nuts always change across borders. So you, it won't mean anything to you, but anybody who's lived spent some time in England, uh, United Biscuits make things like uh, McVitie's and Twiglets and Hula Hoops and Skips um, and lots of things. Anyway, I went to watch um, the launch of a biscuit, uh, a five million pound enormous uh, uh, development program for a new kind of biscuit called The Moment. Um, and uh, I don't think any of you have, will have had a moment. Um, and, and the reason... <laughs> The, the, reason for that, the reason for that is that um, biscuits, I don't know if you know this, but they're very precisely targeted. Uh, and the core audience for the moment is um, women between the ages of 26 to 36 living in the north of England on modest incomes. Uh, so I don't think that probably fits any, anybody here. And, and you know, when you go down the supermarket aisle and um, you know, way before you know what biscuit um, you want, you know, the biscuit knows you're coming. And there's everybody, everybody has a biscuit. You can learn an awful lot. I, if you want, I can tell you later what biscuit I like. But um, anyway... Well, the, part of the reason why I wanted to look at United Biscuits, it's a tremendously profitable business. Um, 
And, uh, and 15,000 employees, a vast machine, um, uh, uh, servicing a, a need for a biscuit, which used to be made, of course, in an artisanal way, uh, in a very small-scale way. So it's a, it's a typical feature of the modern working world, these, a giant machine producing something really quite small, large profits off the back of something uh, very small. Now, one of the interesting things of spending time at United Biscuits is that I can never work out what people did from a simple inquiry, because I'd say to people, you know, what, what do you do? And they say things like, oh, I'm a packaging technologist, or I'm a data systems analyst, and I go, what's that? And this, this was absolutely, absolutely quintessential to the business because uh, it's a business full of specialists, uh, and this is a feature of the modern working world. Um, we're all specialists, which is why when we, well, many of us are, when we go to a party and we tend to ask people, you know, what do you do? Very often, it, it takes about six questions before you even begin to understand what your interlocutor is actually up to because, you know, it's so specialised. We're all of us very, very... Uh, uh, um, uh, committed to uh, often a very narrow area. And that's absolutely the way it should be economically. That's how countries get rich. Um, if you listen to someone like the Italian economist Vilfredo Pareto, he came up in the 19th century with a famous equation, basically saying that the more specialised your workforce is, uh, the richer your country will be. Um, that, that there's a link between wealth and specialization. And there's absolutely no point, you know, train drivers coming home uh, in the evening and starting to make yogurt or uh, brain surgeons making children's clothes. You know, you have to specialize. That's how you, you get rich. Now, that's very true economically. The problem is, um, the problem is meaning. Um, and this is something that I really, was really looking at uh, in, in the context of, of biscuits. I spent some time in the back office in the um, uh, place where the um, uh, orders are taken and the shipments are, uh, are organized. And there was often a kind of low-level, I don't think it would be too strong to call it depression um, in the back office. Uh, and I think it, chatting to people, when the PR person, I was often shadowed by a PR person, but I often chatted to them later on and uh, when no one was uh, around. And, and really, often the word meaning would come up. They, you know, the salaries were healthy enough, um, but the problem with the job was a question of meaning. And I think the, the issue really, well, what is meaning? I think one of the things we really desperately want from our jobs is, is that they feel meaningful. And I think a job feels meaningful whenever we feel that in some ways we've made a difference. Um, we, we're taught to think of ourselves as individuals uh, on a kind of lone pursuit for capitalist success. But I think there's a very large part of us, once our basic needs are cared for, uh, which, are who, which are communal and are interested in helping others. And I think that work becomes meaningful whenever in some ways we feel that we've either been able to alleviate the suffering of another human being or else um, produce delight or pleasure. Uh, uh, in them. And that's an absolutely essential uh, thing. Now, of course, the most obviously meaningful jobs are things like being a brain surgeon or a nurse or something, but um, there's not only that. I mean, anybody who's, let's say, um, I don't know, reuniting people with their lost luggage or sanding a stair banister or removing a squeak in a door, any, any job which gives you the feeling at the end of the day that you've been able to leave uh, humanity that little bit more enriched or, or happy or less unhappy um, feels uh, uh, meaningful. Now, don't get me wrong, the business of making biscuits is meaningful um, uh, because, uh, you know, if you've ever been hungry at about 11 o'clock uh, in the morning and you're going to reach for the cookie jar, thank goodness that biscuits exist. You know, these things help us and they make civilization that little bit um, uh, 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 more palatable. But the, the problem is how meaningful it can feel to be part of this vast organization. If you're employee number 8,322, you're very, very far from a sense of the meaning of what you're doing. And this seems absolutely characteristic of the modern world where a majority of us are working in very large corporations where we can be very far from a sense of how our work is touching other human beings. So all of this I was thinking about 
about in the context of this uh, 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 biscuit factory. And it, as I say, like many of the jobs I looked at, it, it could have been other things, um, but it, it, it's, again, a quintessential uh, kind of dilemma of the modern working world. How are we going to make work meaningful? How will it feel meaningful? Um, Moving on, another uh, area that I went to, uh, uh, to look at is the world of accountancy. Uh, I spent some time in the world's second largest accountancy firm that I can't name, sadly, for legal reasons. Um, I, I say that, it's not a joke, but um, it was, it's very, very hard to go and look at any corporation. And um, often, one has to be a bit careful. I had to um, use subterfuge sometimes and be a little bit careful. So I can't tell you uh, the firm. But anyway, I went to hang out with these accountants. Um, very, very large machine, 10,000 employees in central London in, a, in the proverbial glass tower. And I wanted to look at how this large white-collar factory was working and operating and some of its features uh, uh, and all of this. And one of the things I was interested in was the issue of motivation, um, uh, because it seems absolutely essential to anybody managing people or anybody working in an organization. How are you going to be motivated? How does motivation work? Now, motivation used to be very easy. In the good old days, the only thing really you needed uh, uh, to motivate your workforce was a whip. Um, you know, people were not working hard enough. You just hit them and, uh, you know, things went better. Very sadly, um, from, by all accounts, it's just out. You can't really hit anybody these days. It, it's just not going to work. Because most jobs, people really need to feel engaged. They need to kind of quite like what they're doing. Otherwise, uh, they're not going to do it uh, uh, properly. And this explains the birth of the HR department, really, um, and, and, the, and the art or pseudoscience of management. You know, the whole system that tries to keep large numbers of white-collar workers um, uh, not killing one another while they're eating lunch beside one another in these cubicles. Um, and that is the reason for, as it were, this, this HR department. Now, this accountancy firm has a vast HR department. The whole of the ninth floor of uh, one of their towers is, is occupied by the HR department. And I was ready to be a bit sarcastic uh, about them, too. But it, I was actually kind of won over by the whole business, because I think it's, it, it's, you know, it's the first time in history that we've got these huge organizations of very ambitious, very intelligent people who, as I say, are not killing one another, who are more or less resolving their conflicts and working more or less uh, effectively beside one another. And some of the reason is um, uh, some of the discoveries that go on under this rubric of, of, of HR. When I was there uh, in the firm, they were just launching um, a 24-hour anti-bullying hotline. Uh, and basically, you know, if anybody's giving you a dirty look or feeling of humiliation, you can pick up the phone day or night, talk to a psychologist, and the issue is going to be dealt with in really very admirable uh, sort of uh, uh, manner. Um, there's even, if somebody in your team has bad breath, um, uh, there's... Uh, uh, there's something you can do about it. You can report it anonymously. Um, it sounds ridiculous, but uh, these uh, accountants get charged out at something like $600 an hour, and they work in teams. So if one member of your team is uh, proving unappealing to a customer base, uh, this could really hurt you know, your, your own revenue, your team's revenue, etc. So it's kind of important, but, but strange. And so um, uh, you can call up a, 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 this uh, hotline. You can report whoever it is, and uh, anonymously uh, uh, um, it will be dealt with, because in the next couple of weeks, that person will be called in to do a course, um, ostensibly on something uh, uh, completely different, like letter writing or public speaking. But in the course of that uh, uh, training session, they'll be left in absolutely no doubt as to the importance of good oral hygiene. So very, very kind of subtle uh, uh, kind of process. And, you know, it used to be the case that, um, uh, that home life was associated with kindness, sensitivity, uh, 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 generosity, and, and working life was all about exploitation and cruelty and meanness. But I think that sometimes in the most advanced organizations, it's almost like that equation has been reversed. And um, 
uh, again, I don't want to be too autobiographical, but sometimes I, I would come back from um, uh, the accountants and um, I'd be sitting with, uh, uh, with my wife, it'd be Friday night, and um, uh, you know, the, the, the crockery and the insults were about to fly. And I remember thinking, goodness, you know, if only the HR department were here to, you know, where's the 24-hour anti-bullying hotline? And um, somebody can come along and get us to uh, hold hands and sing songs and all the imaginative things that often uh, HR departments uh, uh, suggest. Um, and the other thing that, um, well, I work on my own as a writer most of the time, so I don't work in a large uh, uh, office, but um, um, one of the things I often do is waste a lot of time, and um, I feel tremendously uh, uh, guilty about this, um, but I'm always looking out of the window and changing proverbial light bulbs, etc. And um, I always think that people in offices must be a hive of activity and uh, uh, good sense and um, a focus. Uh, and, and one of the wonderful things about spending time in this accountancy firm is, is that I realise that there's an unbelievable amount of waste of time uh, that goes on in offices. And this came such a relief. Um, people spend, unbelievable, as I say, unbelievable amounts of time. I think most corporations are like, um, they're like buckets uh, uh, that are full of water and, and they're riddled with holes and water's just pouring out. Um, and it's amazing if by the end of the tax year there's anything left uh, in, in the bucket at all. Um, so, um, uh, you know, meetings and anyway, you, you'll, you, you know how this happens. So that was interesting to study. But at the same time, I observed that there's a real culture, there was, it is a real culture of workaholism. So it's this kind of odd, uh, uh, one level a waste of time and another level, a complete machismo about how much work you should be doing. And in this accountancy firm, um, every, every night, there's a, a pizza and Coke trolley that basically goes down the aisles on every floor. And, um, uh, and it's almost a, a given that you will, particularly in the junior ranks, spend a couple of evenings a week, a weekend or two a month, um, doing a pizza evening, doing a, a pizza session, working right the way through uh, to finish a, a particular job. And there's a kind of pride uh, in that. Um, and I remember one day I was looking at um, a team of people uh, that I'd been uh, following, and, and this was a Saturday at about four o'clock. And um, they'd been working since the previous uh, Friday, since 9 a.m., enormous stretch of time working. And I remember suddenly thinking about the Sabbath. Um, and I remember thinking, okay, well, what, what's the Sabbath about? I mean, on the one hand, um, the Sabbath is, you know, God creates the world, takes a step back, wants us to admire his creation, and we should, you know, put down our tools uh, while doing that. A mad idea from a secular point of view. But I think you can read the story of the Sabbath, and you can read what the point of the Sabbath might be from a secular point of view and gain something quite interesting from it. Because I think what the Sabbath is really about is megalomania. Uh, it's about workaholism and megalomania. Because what it's really saying is, you did not create the world. Uh, so occasionally put down your tools and acknowledge that though you control some of the levers of the world, you don't control them all. It's a, it's a forced acknowledgement, not just of your physical frailty, but in a way of your psychological uh, frailty too, of the fact that we as human beings are only one part, uh, and perhaps not the most important part, of a giant drama of, of life, and we don't control it all. So somehow the, 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 the putting down of tools seems to have a value, uh, not just at a physical level, but at a, at a kind of mental level. And we do, in our workaholic culture seem to forget that. So that's something I was uh, 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 thinking about. Another thing I was struck by in, um, uh, in, in, in this uh, uh, office of, of accountants, and I don't know if we know each other well enough for me to go here, but um, one of the things I found was that it was a remarkably erotic place, um, the, 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 the office. And um, this was kind of um, at odds with, with the stated company uh, policy, because um, 
Uh, you know, na nowadays we really pride ourselves on how liberated we are about um, all matters to do with sex and relationships. And we tend to giggle at our Victorian ancestors and the way they used to sort of faint at the sight of an elbow or a knee or something. Um, but, but if you go into many corporations, it's odd because these are the last bastions of a peculiarly neo-Victorian kind of prudishness. And I remember going to, uh, when I was inducted, uh, along with another group of people uh, um, uh, at the beginning of my time, um, I was given a large folder which full of sort of information of um, how much you can spend on taxis, etc. And there's a whole section, a whole chapter on, it's not called that, but it's basically on sex. Uh, and um, the, the, the essential drift is, is don't. Uh, um, not, with, uh, not with anyone, you know, no one above you or below you, to the side, man, woman, no, no. Uh, and, and this seems sort of striking in, in our enlightened age, and it's always couched in the language of <clears throat> protecting the innocent from unwanted advances um, from often male uh, superiors. Um, and though that's sometimes true, undoubtedly, there seems to be something else going on. It's almost, I think, like a kind of jealousy. Um, it's almost as though really what's going on is that the corporation is jealous, that there might be something more interesting to do than to go to work, <laughs> namely have sex. <clears throat> and... Um, I think no society can do without repressing the sexual impulse. And, um, you know, for, for long periods, this is what the church did. A church, another very jealous institution, worried that you might think, find something else more interesting uh, than God. So God and money being the two pivotal values of the Western, uh, uh, history, Western history in the last uh, uh, centuries. Uh, and again, in both cases, these are organizations that, that censor uh, 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 sex. Fascinating, there's a historian of um, uh, um, um, early modern France called Robert Danton who wrote a book a few years ago and uh, in this book he, um, he writes that uh, uh, he made a study of um, all the literature published in the 18th century, particularly in pornography. And he comes up with this intriguing statistic that 98% of all pornographic literature published in 18th century France was set in either a monastery or a nunnery. Extraordinary statistic. Now, um, Friends, friends of mine, uh, no, acquaintance, distant acquaintances, people, people I hardly know, uh, have, have told me that uh, if you look on the internet, uh, a medium I don't understand and have hardly used, that there is a whole subgenre of, of pornography um, set in offices. Um, and I think you can learn an awful lot. I'm going to stop that bit there. But anyway, you, you get my drift. Um, okay, a few more minutes just to, to finish up, really. I mean, what I, I want to finish up by saying, by, by, I've talked about some of the sorrows, we've touched on some of the sorrows. There are pleasures in work, and I want to just sum up what I think some of the pleasures are. I think one of the great things about work, and it sounds, uh, perhaps could sound strange, but one of the great things about work is it keeps us distracted. Uh, now, distraction is normally not a fashionable topic, particularly for philosophers. Philosophers are supposed to remove themselves from distraction and uh, hide away, possibly in towers, and contemplate the onset of death, the meaninglessness of social relations, etc. Um, that's supposed to be what philosophers do. Now, I, as a, a, a philosopher, have done an awful lot of that, uh, and I'm coming around to the view that um, maybe there are limits to that. Maybe there are some problems that we can't really get a grip on, uh, and that one of the great things about work, about a task, is that we can throw ourselves into something which keeps at bay some of the vast, imponderable, perhaps unsolvable questions, and keeps us focused for a time on some relatively manageable issues. Um, and, um, and I think we should welcome work for that. We should welcome work for its capacity sometimes to be a haven into which we escape from problems which are frankly too large for us. And many problems are too large for us and that is a respectable largeness uh, which work gives a, a, a space or at least a relief uh, from. And I think one of the other things that work um, uh, is, is, uh, uh, has a kind of redemptive quality in, in relation to is the idea that we can create something when work is going well we're able to create something which is that little bit better than we are. 
You know, in, in the best kinds of work, we're able to build something, make something, sculpt something, produce a system, an organization that has to it an intelligence, a symmetry, a beauty, a logic, a kindness that perhaps we can't lay claim to in our ordinary life, but that we're able to concentrate in what we call work uh, and so can stand back and, in a way, feel proud of qualities which we have only an insecure hold of uh, uh, in the rest of our lives. Um, I see the time is ticking on, but what I really want to do is to hear a little bit from you and hear your questions. So that's the end of my bit, but do come back at me uh, with thoughts and, and issues. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you. If you've got a question, I think there are roving mics, so um, feel yeah. free to put up your hand. And, um. Hi, thank you. My name is Daniel. Um, listening to your lecture, I, I'm reminded of uh, Jose Enrique Rodó in Ariel, where he writes about the specialization and the utilitarianism that is kind of a product of American society and democracy. And I'm also reminded a little bit about you know, Marx as well as us being just means to an end that is production. And I wonder, in thinking of other cultures, though, in thinking of other societies, uh, like France, for instance, I don't, I don't envision their work habit being the same as us in America. And I'm wondering if, if, uh, if you think that's something that's kind of a factor of, of society, or, or, or do you see mm. the way that we operate in, in our work habits the same to be as in yeah. France, or are we different? And uh, do you think that the Rodeau, of course, was, was Latin American, and yet he was able to identify U.S. work habits better than we could ourselves? Do you think that an outsider has to look into another society in order to detail it? I think I think you have to. I think it's easy to romanticize what goes on in Europe. I think you have to um, you have to go way below Rome before people are really taking siestas on a kind of regular basis. You know, <laughs> most people, Rome and above, uh, they're, they're working pretty hard, um, pretty much like here. Um, you know, we, we've built a, a modern workaholic world, and it, it's you know the reason for that is simple. It's not that people want uh, necessarily to work that hard, but you get obliterated if you don't. Um, you have to run as fast as the fastest runner, or at least try to, um, and so. You know, however, uh, you know, charmed we might be by the idea of a siesta uh, as individuals, we can't unless um, uh, uh, everybody, you know, agrees to, um, uh, uh, to to have a collective siesta, a, a global siesta at a certain uh, kind of time. But there are definitely cultures that have placed work, uh, you know, less uh, at the centre uh, th th than we have. Um, the, the classic defence of why work is at our, I mean. In the 18th century, this issue was, was very much debated by philosophers. There's a, there's a famous debate between Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Adam Smith about really this whole kind of issue. And uh, Rousseau is living in Geneva and writing in Geneva, and Adam Smith is up in Edinburgh. And they've got two different views of work. Essentially, um, Rousseau wants to go back to the simple life. He, he looks back to the hunting and gathering age. His, um, his, the societies he likes are ancient Sparta, uh, and kind of pre-modern society where people did a little bit of fishing and hunting, etc. And he wants to go back to that. He wants to close the borders of Geneva. He wants to stop free trade. He wants to stop what he calls luxury and what we would call shopping malls and international trade. He wants to stop all that and go back to the simple way of life. And Adam Smith is listening to him and um, has a classic argument which no one has ever quite known how to answer or better. And Adam Smith points out that we need luxury and we need international trade for a simple reason, the bottom 10 to 15% of your population. He points out that the bottom 10 to 15% of your population, the most vulnerable members, starve unless you have free trade, luxury, and a hard-working, specialized workforce. 
And we've never known, quite known what to do about that. This is always a great, great stumbling point. However much we might be uh, uh, interested in a, a simple life, a non-materialistic life, there's a, there's a debt that, as it were, uh, uh, the poorest in society owe to the biscuit factory, to the production of uh, all these um, uh, potentially, in inverted commas, superfluous systems of production are paying, our tax dollars are paying for cranial scanning machines, orphanages, et cetera, et cetera. So um, anyway, this whole issue, um, yeah, it's fascinating and um, uh, lies, you know, it's a constant, uh, constant concern and, and something I, I air in the book as well. Um, other thoughts? Any other thoughts? I wondered if you might comment on the connection between play and work. I was thinking of the book The Play Ethic by Pat Kane, yeah. which talks about the, the fact that we um, would benefit from incorporating play and work and work and play and that they may not be opposites. Yes, I think that's right. I think the dream uh, is, isn't it, to, 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 make the, 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 to, to make sure that there's no division between work and play, that we will make necessity um, uh, uh, joyful. I mean, as I was saying, that was the, that's the dream of modernity, that, um, that we will unite what is necessary with what is pleasurable. Um, it remains a dream. Uh, and um, uh, I think that one of the terribly difficult things is that it's not a dream that we own up to, we don't really own up to its fantasy element, um, which leaves many of us very confused about what's going wrong with our working lives as individuals. Um, and um, it feels to me tremendously important to have voices in society that are um, carefully cynical uh, and generously cynical uh, about the, the story of work that we often tell ourselves, not in order to despair, to make us despair, but in order to alleviate us from a sense of persecution uh, that somehow we have gone wrong. Uh, that somehow why is our work not like play? Um, and, uh, uh, and maybe it can't be, uh, or can only partially be. Um, I mean, I know, talk to any writer, you know. Um, writers, in a way, you know, like many creative people, are doing something which is quite close to a hobby. But speak to any writer on, you know, a Monday at nine o'clock, they're groaning. They're saying, I don't want to write. You know, I want to do almost anything else. Um, I think it's, um, I, I think that most occupations, in order to lift them from the status of play to the status of work, demand an extra level of effort, concentration, um, which will always involve um, a, a degree of suffering. Um, so that's how I see that. Yeah. I have two questions for you. First of all, um, for the people that uh, you looked at for your book, how self-aware do you think they are about their work, about the value and meaning uh, that work has for them? My sense is that a lot of people just kind of get through their lives and they're not very self-aware about what work really means to them. And my second question is, what is your favorite biscuit? <laughs> Uh, I'll go with the easy one. Um, uh, we have in England, they're called, they're called fig rolls. I think you call them fig newtons, which are a biscuit that is, um, it, it's, it's for people who, who are attracted to health without actually wanting to make a commitment <laughs> to health. So that's me. Um, but um, but your, your more serious question... Uh, I don't know. I, my experience of people in the workplace is that everybody thinks very, very hard about their work, um, whether their work is fulfilling or not fulfilling. I don't think the human animal uh, does non-thinking 
that well, ultimately. Um, I think however pleasant it might be just to go to work without thinking about it, um, most of us um, can't stop thinking about it and can't stop thinking about opportunities and possibilities, etc. As I say, I think it's a quintessential part of, of, of being modern. I think where we get lost is we don't necessarily think properly and we don't necessarily think productively. And I think the reason for that is that we maybe don't acknowledge how difficult it is to get our career right. I'm always amazed by how, how much pressure there is on people to join the workforce quickly and almost unthinkingly, I mean, there's almost a pressure not to give it the thought it requires, you know, college graduates, etc. Um, and my advice to people, you know, graduating, etc., is always take a long, long time to think about it because um, however much we like to think that our workforce is flexible and that there are so many opportunities to try out one thing and another, you know, I, there are very few brain surgeons I know who've later retrained to become architects and then gone on to do a bit of piloting and then moved on to landscape gardening or whatever it is. On the whole, we specialise and we stay there and it's extremely hard to reverse uh, out of a career. And one of my hopes for writing the book was to use the book as a kind of mirror to our working selves, as a kind of tool, almost for a sort of meditation on what we're doing and what other people do. Because one of the things we don't have enough of often is data on what other people's jobs actually involve. Um, I, know, I have friends who I've known for 15 years and I have no idea what they do in their work. Uh, and I'm sort of embarrassed to ask and I've never seen their desk and I kind of want to know what, what their desk looks like. And nowadays, I've started asking people things like, what did you do at what were you doing at 11 o'clock today? What, what do you do? At what are you doing? I don't understand what you do. Because often, we don't, we don't trade this kind of data. And out of this silence often comes confusion and non-thought. Not because we don't want to think, but as I say, we don't have the tools. Anyway, yeah, a few more questions. Who's yep. near a mic? Near yeah, a I've mic? got one up here. OK. Um, hey, yep. Thank you. Um, I, I wanted to ask you to reflect maybe a bit on, um, you, you've already talked a little bit about the difficulty of finding a job that one likes in, in your previous answer, and then also the drudgery sometimes of work in responding to the previous question. One of your uh, countrymen, uh, Madeline Bunting, wrote a book called Willing Slaves. Uh, you're familiar with it, I guess. Yeah. So w what do you think about this notion that modern society has appropriated the idea of vocation, right, a calling, uh, in order to get us to identify ourselves with our work and and to completely uh, buy into our own slavery, as Aristotle puts it. Um, I, I think that's very interesting. I think the idea of a calling, I was talking about the career counselor, that's something that he, I remember he was very interested in. Um, let's remind ourselves, the idea of a calling, it's a medieval idea, a Christian idea, uh, which suggests that everybody uh, has the potential at some point to be singled out by God and appointed to a particular job. So you'll be walking down the street and a metaphoric large finger will point to you uh, and say, you know, <laughs> you come with me. Um, now, the, the interesting thing is that many of us have a hangover of that idea of a calling in a secular age. So we almost expect that, you know, the sky will open and somebody will go, you know, accountancy is for you and, you know, shipbuilding is for you or whatever it is. And um, the, my real sense is that, uh, and perhaps this is Madeline Bunting's point too, um, it's a myth. Most of us do not have callings. It's very unusual. You know, 2% of us have callings. The rest of us lie on our beds going, oh dear, how are we going to fit the me in all my complexity and, and waywardness and strangeness into something called a career. Um, and that is much more normal. And I think the idea of a calling is tremendously, it, it, interrupt, it intimidates us and interrupts what should be a patient, genuine, and sort of humble search uh, for a job. I think it panics us. Um, so I'm all for doing away with that word. I think it's a troubling word. Um, let's take one, one last question. Um, anybody got a pressing question and near a mic? Um, I help in here. Um, did you have any preconceived notions about work or um, 
about what you were going to learn in researching this book that were altered in some way after having written it? Um, I think one of the things that um, amazed and moved me was how much work goes on behind everything. There is nothing that you can look at, anything you care to look at, any process, anything you care to look at that has been done by human hands or human ingenuity. There's an unbelievable amount of labor that has gone into it. Uh, an extraordinary amount of labor. You know, uh, I, I wrote it, uh, um, one of the chapters is on uh, the business of aviation, and I went to the Paris Air Show where you can put down a deposit on a Dreamliner or whatever, and it, it's, uh, it's full of people in the industry of, of, of planes. And I met a man whose business, which is in Wyoming, makes cabin curtains. That's all they do, the cabin curtains. And um, you know, obviously, I never thought about cabin curtains. You know, one doesn't. It's a giant organization. Uh, there are many, there are uh, something like six cabin curtain, six big cabin curtain manufacturers in the world, and they're constantly in competition, and there are trade shows, etc. There is no piece of plastic you can look at that has not had hundreds of people poring over it, thinking about it, etc. And it's very moving. It's very easy to hate human beings when you see them on holiday, on vacation, <laughs> when, they're, when they're at the beach, uh, uh, you know, and they're slightly overweight, and they're eating an ice cream. You think, ooh. But when you see people at work, you see anybody at work doing a halfway decent job, it's moving. It's like watching somebody sleeping. It's, there's something intrinsically moving because you're seeing human effort applied to the world. Um, and, and so I think I was surprised by that. And I was surprised by, in a way, the similarities in mean, all jobs, that, that whatever job it is, there are so many families of, of, of similarities. Um, and as, a, as it were, it's a very moving uh, uh, kind of thing. So uh, there are sorrows in the book, but there are definitely also uh, uh, pleasures and, and things to be moved by. Um, I'm watching the clock uh, ticking by. For me, this is the end of uh, seven days of hard work touring the United States. Uh, I've, um, I've been in lots of venues. I started off in Boston uh, uh, this time last week. Uh, so it's particularly moving and nice for me to end in, in uh, such a beautiful hall uh, with such uh, very uh, uh, curious and interesting people. So thank you all so much for listening to me. And do come and uh, chat afterwards and um, um, come and uh, say hello. Thank you very much. Thank you.